Heavenly Father, so grateful to be here, to worship, to fellowship together, to sing praises to you, to connect our hearts and ears to your word that we might be doers as we leave here today. But Father, to start a week again in your word is what we desire. I thank you for all who are here. We pray for all who couldn't be here, Father, and, and just hope all is well with them. But, but Lord, we just desire to hear your voice through your word. Lord, we desire to be obedient to your word. Uh, Father, pray for Steve as he will get up this morning and teach us. Pray for his message. Pray for the authority of the word as it comes to us, Father, that it would be heard as an authority. Father, we pray and, and thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. What we're going to do, we're going to go ahead and get started with the lesson I've put together. So let me just jump right into it if there's no other announcements. Here's the cool thing about teaching, and as Joe referred to, we're in the older group. It's true. I could teach a message and come back a month later and teach it again. They don't remember what I said. Now, I don't, know, I don't think it's because I didn't have something important to say. They just don't remember. I look at blank faces like you remember. I, I hmm. No. No memories. All right. The last time I taught, I did teach two lessons out of Romans chapter 6. Does anybody in Joe's class remember? See? My wife does. A couple might. Well... I'm going back to Romans 6, different, different lesson altogether. Uh, Romans chapter 6, where I taught before, if anybody was interested, they are archived, I understand, on the church website. There are two errors that Paul deals with in the context of Romans chapter 6, just as brief as possible to go through those. And that's what I taught, those two, two different errors the last couple of times I was in Romans chapter 6. And those errors, Paul has been hearing, he gives a rebuttal on them, and he he teaches some profound truth around why those were errors. The first error was this, and it comes from chapter 5, and here's how the the error kind of came up. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And from that teaching... An error had come up. Paul was used to hearing it, and so he rebuts it. If you look at chapter 6 right away, he says, What shall we say then to this? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So this error had been going around that, hey, Paul's telling us that God puts this abundant grace or abounding grace was kind of the term. It's bigger than the bigger sinner. And God loves that. He loves to apply grace and save sinners. Maybe that means God is good with us continuing in sin. We can continue to sin because God loves putting abounding grace on ever-abounding sin. So they came to this error that, hey, it's okay to keep sinning. Paul said so. Grace will be applied. All of our sins are forgiven, past, present, future. So... What a great thing. We can just keep on sinning. So that was the first error. Paul says uh, in response to that, verse 2, may it never be. Second error comes in verse 15, but we'll read 14 and 15 just to get a little 
little flavor of it. Verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So people were hearing that we're not under law anymore. That invisible hand of the law over us to keep us from sinning. We're always thinking about the law. It's gone. What's going to keep me from not sinning now? And that was the error going on. So in verse 15, Paul says to that, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, the same answer, may it never be. So that's where I was in the past. Brief introduction to the past two messages. Anybody in the class remember besides my wife? Okay. All right. So that's where we've been. There's more spiritual truth in Romans 6 we're going to look at. I've got the next four Sundays after this one because of the busyness of my life right now. I would like to say this. There's five results of our spiritual union with Christ is where I'm going. I'm on the first one. I'm hopeful that my outline is going to prove there's four more than I'm going to get to, or, or it may be four, or it may be three. So what we're looking for now, because Paul brings up this issue, that the reason why we don't keep sinning, and we don't want to sin, we don't want to go back to our old life, is we've got this spiritual union with Christ. And what does that mean? So we're going to look at the results of our spiritual union with Christ. The first one we're going to look at is this. The death and resurrection is the dynamic event defining our life in Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ is the dynamic event that defines our life in Christ. Let's read verses 1 through 7, Romans chapter 6. We're going to key in, though, on chapter 5. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So we're going to key in really on verse 5. And this is a central point, what Paul exposes in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6. It's a central point to his further uh, writing of the pastoral epistles. It's a central point of our union of Christ. And it's emphasized by how we connect ourselves back to the death and resurrection of the Lord. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection is a central point of Paul's pastoral epistles. It's a central point that controls his ministry. For Paul... The deeper meaning of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection is not an abstract idea. There's deeper truth that we can comprehend, and we can comprehend it because we have Christ in us. It is the very foundation for the life that we are now to live and walk out from our salvation. Every single day we live beyond that moment of our individual salvation we live out the resurrection, we live out the death, and it should be a dynamic event that shapes how we should now live day by day. We're to live in that reality. We're to be connected with Christ through his death and his resurrection, therefore making it also ours. 
So a little background. How did Paul get to this point of chapter 6? Just a little little background. I don't have time for a lot. I'm just going to sum up what I see in Romans chapter 5. If you're familiar with it, you've studied it before. I can sum up Romans chapter 5 in the form of a question. And the question would be, who are you? Who are you? Because the answer is, you're either one or you're the other. You're either in Adam or you're now in Christ. And what does that mean? You're either still condemned or you're now justified. And we can look at that as a definition of all humanity. We're either one or or we are the other. And in verse 5 of chapter 5, Paul says that the Spirit was given us. We come to verse 5 in chapter 6. We are united with Christ. These are synonyms of the same event. It identifies the new man who has been justified by free grace through faith. Once in Adam, now in Christ. A new identity. The old nature regenerated by a sovereign instant act of God. I have no doubt in Ben's Sunday school like ours and like what we hear from our pulpit, we hear of the events of what we call soteriology, salvation doctrine. There's a regeneration, there's a justification, there's sanctification. One of the points of Paul in teaching Romans chapter 6 is that like justification, it's a definite event in the life of a believer. So is sanctification. We are sanctified, ready to walk with this new life in Christ. But there's a subsidiary event where the believer is now in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us. It's an part of the action of God, again, all sovereign actions of God in salvation, where he imparts to us the indwelling Holy Spirit. I said this is an active part of Paul's epistles, this indwelling of Christ. So just a couple of verses to familiarize us with the pattern that he goes on in with this in Christ indwelling nature is 2 Corinthians 5.17. You don't need to turn there. We know that. Anyone in Christ is what? It's a new creation. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Believers are blessed with every special blessing in Christ. And in Romans chapter 6, this union of being in Christ suggests there are immediate benefits to us. That old self from that definition of who you are in Romans chapter 5 If you were in Adam, and we were, that old self has been crucified. Our old body of sin was done away with. We're no longer enslaved to that body of sin. We're now free. Paul teaches a lot of characteristics of this union we have with Christ. It's the means for our redemption and our adoption. We're children of God. There are some who teach, and I just saw it on a sign on another church on my way here this morning. Some would teach that everyone, believer or not, all men are in one essence with God. All are part of God's family. We're all God's children. But Scripture doesn't teach that. John 1, 12 through 13 would tell us that only those who receive Christ in truth are given the right to become children of God. Christ dwells in those sovereignly regenerated. But about this indwelling of the Spirit, Paul would say also, and and we would probably agree with him, he says it's a mystery. It's a profound mystery. He says that in Ephesians 3. But turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Get some more background about what Paul, how Paul defines this mystery of this indwelling nature of Christ in us. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 27. Paul writes, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. And here's what he means by that. He says, verse 26, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. Paul teaches more about this indwelling union of Christ in us. He tells us it's judicial in nature. Again, we, if we've studied Romans, we can go back into chapter 3. So if you want to turn back towards Romans, look at chapter 3. God always sees the believer in union with Christ, and he measures the two by Christ. God sees the two as one and declares them righteous. And that's due to the unity of mutually possessed righteousness, none coming from us, but let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. Paul writes there, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. From a heavenly court, from that perspective, the two are now one. And justification can be a confusing concept to some, just to, to briefly look at that because that's how we came to be in Christ. On what grounds are we justified? When we have no way to justify ourselves. Well, the imagery of justification takes us back to those Old Testament sacrifices where the priest laid his hand on the sacrificial lamb to symbolically transfer the sins of the people to the lamb being sacrificed. Jesus, too, bore our sins, not symbolically, but in reality. The language of justification suggests there has occurred a legal quantitative transfer of some things very important to us. First, the sins and weight of our guilt of all believers were transferred to Christ on the cross. God looked at Jesus on the cross with this enormity of mass of sin and judged him in our place. God looked at us, pronounced us innocent, but not justified yet. The transfer of our sin to Christ's account brought us to innocence. But we're still unrighteous, innocent but not justified, not going to hell, yet not acceptable for heaven until Christ's righteousness is transferred to our account. It is righteousness that gets us to heaven, and we have none of our own. Our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, and it can't. We have none. We can't do anything to merit righteousness. So the other half of the quantitative transfer, our sin went to Christ to bear. His righteousness transferred back to us to wear so Christ can be both the just and justifier of man. And that's the point of the gospel. Not fiction, 
reality. The transaction complete, the seal of the Holy Spirit is given us as a pledge of inheritance. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me, where we find this reality. Ephesians 1, verses 10 through 14. Paul writes here, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in Him, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So this spiritual union, this Christ in us that Paul brings up in Romans chapter 6 verse 5, it's an eternal life with Christ. It's in effect by the Holy Spirit indwelling us. If the Holy Spirit is in us, Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit being the bond of the union. It's a union that also has vitality or or vivification. We could not live the life that Paul's telling us we now have to live. The old self-crucified, we can't live that life without the vitality of this union with Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2 tells us that we have to renew the nature of our mind, that our old mind being spiritually dead and driven by sin needs renewal. The power of the Holy Spirit allows us to do that, allows us to work on the mind day by day and bring it to spiritual life. The purpose that that gives us as we now walk out our salvation until last breath is that we keep renewing our minds And with a renewed mind, we can continue to comprehend these deeper truths that Paul brings up. We can comprehend the deep truths, depths of spiritual truth once hidden to us. 2 Corinthians 4.16, let me turn there and I'll read that, says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Day by day is constant. Renewing restores us back towards that image bearer of our original design. Lost at the fall. Paul teaches too there's a lot of implications of this union to understand. He says we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. If you can get back to Romans 6 real quick and just glance at Romans 6 verse 11. Because there, if you're in the NASB, he uses the word consider. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The word there, consider, might be reckon in another version, might be accounted in another version. Consider, reckon, accounted in the heavenly books, we're dead to sin, but alive to To God in Christ. Alive to God because we're no longer condemned. We get to Romans 8. That's the great truth. Good news. Therefore what? There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We have that right standing in the face of the law and the sight of God. 
Another implication of this union of Christ for us to understand is that it gives us strength. It gives us strength to do what we're going to find out soon that we've got to be doing. If we're going to have a death in the likeness of Christ, we have to be putting to death and executing sin. And that can wear us out. We need strength. We need power. Philippians 4.13, we can do everything through him who gives us strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 tells us that when we're weak, then we're strong. Out of the weaknesses we all have, we find Christ in us is what strengthens us. Another implication of Christ in us, kind of on the negative side, is that we'll suffer. Scripture tells us not to be surprised if we encounter persecution. It tells us if Christ is hated, and he still is, we will be hated too. But 1 Peter 4.13 tells us that we're to rejoice in the privilege to participate in the sufferings of our Lord. Another implication is Scripture teaches us that we reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So if you're not back in Romans chapter 6, you can turn back there. Before we get to this verse, I want to deal with verse 5 and verse 3. Paul asked this question starting out verse 3. He says, do you not know? Know what? A lot of heavenly facts we all need to know. Specifically here, Paul is pointing us to facts about Christ and his death and his resurrection that impact and impart to believers the ability for us to start and sustain a life of sanctification, a life walking with Christ. And the first fact that Paul exposes to us as believers in verse 4 is that we were baptized into the death of Christ. Paul writes, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. Well, might isn't like you might or not, might not. It's you will. There's no choice there. You will walk in newness of life. So the first fact that Paul exposes is that believers were baptized in the death of Christ. He's talking about we have our baptism up there in the water. That's a wet baptism. It's symbolic of this. He's talking about a dry baptism here. In the same kind of vein that we would read in Scripture that there was a, the Israelites were baptized into Moses through the crossing of the Red Sea. It parted. It was dry. They got through dry. Where Paul's going this is, is to remind us that when we were regenerated and we believed in these facts about Christ's death, we were baptized with him in that death. It's a synonym to tell us that we're identified there in a very important way. It's spiritual linkage between our justification and our sanctification in this indwelling nature of Christ. It's our new identification with Christ, where you can think of it this way. You changed addresses. We all move. There's probably someone in here that's in the house they grew up in, possible. But for the rest of us, especially me, we moved a lot. But here, we've changed our identification. We've changed our location. We've relocated in Christ. Out of Adam. We don't live there anymore. That's the point. We're identified with Christ by faith. We were buried with him by faith. 
His death is our death. There's a heavenly times, a heavenly tribune that's published. And some of us like to do this when we get the newspaper. You look through the obituaries and you look at the births. So if there's a heavenly times or heavenly tribune at a day about 20 years ago, it probably said Jim Jensen in Adam version died. Down below is probably obituaries, same moment. Born again, Jim Jensen. Born again. And Paul says we identify with that death in order that we too would walk in this new life that we're born into. This new life is a change in residence. We were once in a sphere of the walking dead, spiritually dead. We're now in the sphere of the, sphere of the spiritually living. And he says knowing this, or accepting by faith the results of that, what does it mean? We're no longer a slave. We've been freed. In Christ we are free. And there's certainty to this uniting for true believers. Verse 5 says it this way. In the NASB it says, for if. But you can insert in there another word. You can put since. Since we. For if. We have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a certainty. Do you have that certainty? That your salvation comes with this uniting because there should be growth. That's what Paul is telling us. There's no growth. We have a problem. Think about this word united in the NASB. You may have a version that says something else. The, the underlying Greek word is a combination of two different words, and, and I don't know how to pronounce Greek, so nobody here throw things at me when I say these things wrong, but it's a Greek word sum and a Greek word fuo, and it means to grow with. So kind of an agricultural connotation to it. You, may, you might have a version that says something about being planted together instead of uniting. Sumphotos. Christ with us, in us, so that we would grow in relationship to his likeness, we will become an image bearer. As I look around here, I'm not everyone, but most of us, our parents, maybe even grandparents by now, we know all about babies. There's one truth about babies is they get bigger. They grow up. They crawl, they walk, they talk, they learn things, they get bigger, they become adults. If it doesn't happen, like it's supposed to, we're going to call, see our doctor. We're going to find out what's going on, that there's no growth with my child. Paul would ask the same thing of us. If you're not spiritually growing with the truths of Christ in you, what's wrong? What's going on? You need to see the spiritual doctor. You need to be in the word and find out why you're not walking in newness of life. So Paul wants us to clearly attach a starting point of reference, a place in time to when this uniting or planting together began. And the issue we have today is sanctification can't be something that is off waiting another day. Yes, I'm saved. I, I, I made a decision. My life is in Christ. I'm still struggling with sin. I know sanctification. It'll come another day. No. Sanctification is not a far-off event. It's not a future event that's going to begin at some point in time. Paul says, no, it happened. 
back at the cross. It happened at the empty tomb. It's the proof of the fact that you're sanctified and you have the ability to, to walk now in Christ. And in verse 6, he says, know this. Believe it. Because there's a result to this truth, he says, that our body of sin will be done away with. So how do we understand how we died in likeness to Christ's death? Verse 6 tells us our old self was crucified. It was done away with. We just go with that theme, doing away with. The Pharisees wanted to do away with Christ. They handed him over to the Romans. They had their own way of doing away with the living. The Romans' method was put them on a cross. God's method for doing away with our body of sin was to have our old self executed just like our Lord was executed in the same manner. God's plan is not this. It's not to reform us, not to have us go into endless years of therapy, not to go to the bookstores, the never-ending aisle of self-help books. Don't look for the solution there. Execute the old self. It's a radical remedy. kind of tells you how God feels about our sin. It required execution. There's no other remedy sufficient to render powerless our sinful nature. Our sinful nature was on a throne ruling us, and the Holy Spirit wasn't coming in until it was dealt with, till it was executed. If we're going to live in the likeness of Christ's death, then we live with a daily purpose to execute ongoing sin in our life. We have to work here to keep this body of sin in check while we wait out this life on this earth to end. Christ in us, we die to sin daily in the likeness of his death. Jesus went to the cross, having defeated himself by spending 40 days in the desert, temptation to sin, using the word as his weapon. It's the same weapon we pick up to execute sin that continues to plague us. Paul says defeat sin in the same way. The word is in you. So what can you do? You live to execute sin. You present your body a living and holy sacrifice every single day. God was able to do for us what man cannot do, execute that old self. So we resist conformity to this world. We resist finding other ways outside of the word, outside of the word of God, to overcome sin. But in our Christian world, so many want to go find solutions for their problems outside of God's word. I liken it to the old nursery rhyme. Humpty Dumpty took a great fall. The original version said 40 score men and 40 score more. We know it as all the king's horses and all the king's men. What couldn't they do? They couldn't put Humpty back together again. And that's man in his fallen state. There's nothing man can do to recreate what God originally designed for us to be. What happened to us at the fall only God can put back together. Men give it their best try. They try hard. The followers of Freud and Young and Skinner are, are, are all still trying to put back the pieces of broken man. And many Christians try through mixing psychology with the word. 
Paul's got a solution for Humpty. He said, crucify him. You execute him. Pick up all those pieces and nail him. That's how you put things back together. You can't retrain. You can't reform. You can't join support groups that are going to be as effective as God's word. That's it, pure and simple. Only the execution of our old self at the cross and continuing day by day is going to get the job done. You want to live a resurrection life? We must live a life of constant battle to execute remaining sin in us till our last breath. And if we're truly centered on our connection to having been buried with and resurrected with Christ, I think it could change our testimony as well. One thing I get to do in overseeing the new members class, I read a lot of testimonies, and they're common. It starts with an event in our lives, and we work from there. Ran across the story this week of a pastor, first time in, in this church. He was new. He preached his message, didn't give his testimony. Standing at the door, people were coming through to greet him. A couple of elderly ladies come by, and they say, Well, so, Pastor, what's your testimony? Before the words could come out of his mouth, probably one of those events that we all know well, what it, my testimony started here. Little child butts in. says, my testimony is this. I was saved 2,000 years ago at the cross when I died with Christ and was resurrected with him. If we're waiting on our sanctifying growth to get a kick start, we need only focus on this reality, the work of Christ at the cross. Back at, at verse 11, Romans 6, consider it done. Reckon it done. Depend on it. Rely on it that your old self was executed at the cross. And the reality of that for believers is we sit here now in this room existing in a union with Christ's death and resurrection to live in the likeness of those events. And knowing this truth, where do we set our minds? Where do we put our emotions and have them in check? What influences our actions? What controls the words that come out of our mouth? can't be here. It's got to be there. Colossians 3, if you turn with me there, Paul tells us just that. Colossians 3, so keep your finger in Romans 6. Colossians 3, I'll read verses 1 through 5. Paul always uses therefores to help us connect the dots all the way through Romans and on. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You want to meditate on something, read all of Colossians 3 over and over again, how we do that. In verse 3 of Colossians 3, Paul connects our old self and its execution to a new resurrection, he says, with Christ hid in us. The reality of Christ as a sovereign king who indwells us as believers is indeed a mystery. We can comprehend it. Unbelievers cannot. It's utter foolishness to them. In 
Colossians 3.3, we see the English word life there. The underlying Greek word is zoa. It speaks to the manner of your life, how you live. And Paul's connection in using that word is we live actively in worship to Christ as an active response of what he has done for us. Zoa is the same word used in John 1, which describes how the word put on human, human flesh. The flesh our Lord walked in, thought and talked and behaved in active response to the word. The word hid in us gives us the power to walk in active response to that word. So how do we apply this knowledge? First, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we living Monday through Saturday? Does our living exemplify a life integrally connected with Christ over 2,000 years ago at Calvary? Does our thinking dwell on this connection daily, or is it just an Easter, one-time-a-year connection? How about our behaviors? Do our behaviors show the light of Christ hid in us such that those who know us away from church recognize a distinct difference? That's individual questions asked corporately. We're the, we're the body of Christ here at Lakeside Community Chapel. Are we at LCC living as a light where we could be described as a city on a hill, prominent in the dark? You can see the light. The unsaved may have Christ hid from them by God, but we should not hide Christ in us from anyone. How do we know who God intends to reveal himself to through the activity of us living daily the revelation of Christ in us? We reveal the gospel to others by living daily the death of Christ by putting to death sin, living daily the resurrection life, a pattern of living that is in the likeness of Christ's death and resurrection, so that we can say this with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Pray for me. I've got hopefully four more results of this having the indwelling Christ in us that I'll get to and I'll bring the next few Sundays. First result of our union with Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ is the dynamic event defining our life in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you that your spirit helped Paul so eloquently put it together for us to comprehend. So Lord, I just pray for all of us as Lakeside Community Chapel that we would go forth and live it individually and corporately to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.